Every time I open a comic book and read from panel to panel, it allows for my imagination to fill in the gutter with spectacular movement that transforms simple lines and colors into vivid playgrounds for my imagination. With a character like Spider-Man, that means imagining him flipping around New York City, street corners on a web, landing a sweet sucker punch on a snarling villain, and helping his frail Aunt May cross the street. In translating Spider-Man to early animation, no longer do we have to imagine these movements anymore. In the late 60s, Spider-Man bursts onto television screens in bright colors with a catchy theme song, but admittedly limited animations. In the 1970s, he squared off against corporate villains and high-rises in live action. But it wasn't until the early 80s that we began to see his true potential on the small screen in animated shows like 1981's Spider-Man and its sequel, Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends. Too many who know the angles, uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle I'll be in 1962, last Wednesday's afternoon They'll bend your ears with reckless self-abandon The Amazing Spider-Talk The Amazing Spider-Talk Come swing the air Sit back and prepare For the Amazing Hello, I'm Dapper Dan Gavostin, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, which I think definitely count. And I'm mischievous Mark Chinacchio, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, but the annuals don't count. Welcome to the fourth season of The Amazing Spider-Talk, the show where two fans and collectors uncover the strange, fun, and fascinating history of the Spider-Man comic universe. If you want to swing along with us on our journey through Spidey's past, present, and future, subscribe to Amazing Spider Talk on your favorite podcast app. Every other week, we put out a mainline episode of our flagship show and sprinkled in between, we review new comics, as well as interview some of the greatest Spider-Man creators of yesterday and today. This is the perfect time to start listening. And Dan, we even have new comics coming up now. I know. The world is alive again. In this season of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk, we'll be revisiting Spider-Man's adventures in the early 80s, where denim jackets were hip, the villains were forgettable, and the creative voices at Marvel were constantly changing. Sure, Spider-Man comics weren't at their creative zenith, but seemingly nothing could stop Spider-Man's meteoric rise through the pop culture landscape. Part of the ascension came in the form of two new cartoon shows that sought to build off the foundations laid by the popular 1960s show. So that's exactly where we're gonna, what we're going to be talking about today. 1981 Spider-Man and the follow-up series Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends. And if you haven't already, check out that awesome artwork commissioned from Nick Cagnetti depicting Spider-Man, Iceman, and Firestar fighting against Doctor Doom. It's great because it's actually a recreation of the legendary John Romita Sr.'s network pitch artwork for Spider-Man and his amazing friends. That's right, Mark. And if you're watching live, you know what Mark's talking about because you're looking at it right now. Because we're also video streaming our show live. Every other Sunday at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time, tune in on YouTube as we talk and record Amazing Spider Talk live. Plus, Mark and I are going to stick around after the show to interact with the audience and answer your questions live. Just go to Amazing Spider Talk on YouTube, hit subscribe, and be sure to turn on the notifications by clicking on that little bell to be reminded when they go live. But we couldn't do this alone. 
I mean, we couldn't. Instead, we're bringing in one of our very own amazing friends to help us discuss these shows. Dan, it's, it's great that we get to kind of pop the live cherry with an amazing friend with on the Amazing Friends episode, right? Yeah, absolutely. It, it makes perfect sense. Okay. Yes. So that amazing friend, of course, is none other than YouTube's own Xavier Mendoza from the Godzilla Mendoza channel. Welcome to the show, Xavier. Hey, it's nice to be here, and I'm really honored to uh, both be on the show on your guys' end and then help, you know, stream it on my channel. For those who don't know about me, I'm uh, some dorky kid from the U.S. who loves to cosplay, write stories, and read comics. Uh, On my own channel, I review comics, games, and animated shows, as well as do cosplay tutorials. So if you ever want to learn how to sew Spider-Man costumes from scratch, I can teach you how to do that. I've also reviewed all of Spider-Man's video games and just a lot of other comic booky stuff. Whatever just strikes my fancy at the time. So, hi. Spider-Man. Well, welcome to the show, Xavier. I- I'm curious. You know, everybody's got an origin story in terms of Spider-Man. How, like, what was the first experience you really had with the character? I, I actually, I remember it pretty vividly is when I was like three years old. My parents, like when I was like a baby going into a toddler, they, they just bought me nothing but like Elmo stuff all the time. And like just my whole room was entirely covered in Elmo and like... That's just what they they thought I was like into. But like I I would always go into my dad's office in the other side of the house and see all these Spider-Man posters all over the place. And I was like, what's that? Who's that guy? And like he would just kind of describe it to me as about as well as as a little kid could understand. But one day my mom was actually taking me to the store and we were just just going around shopping. And we were in like the pharmacy aisle at a Walmart. And I was just standing up in the shopping cart and I saw on a shelf a Spider-Man action figure that I think someone had taken to that aisle and then just kind of left there haphazardly. And I grabbed it and was like, can I have this? And she said, sure. So I I took it home and that Spider-Man action figure was like, I I, I still have it to this day, but it's, I just like kind of fell in love with the character design and eventually started asking my dad about like, what's this character about? What are his stories? And like, every time I needed new information he would always just tell me verbally or occasionally show me one of his old comics and then you know my parents themselves have always been into comics that's why my name is xavier is because my mom read a lot of x-men in the 90s before i was born kind of funny thing about that is when they were trying to figure out what to name me my dad suggested godzilla my mom said no and was like how about xavier instead so that's why that ended up being my my handle on all the internet stuff I, I do have to wonder, though, was like your your first bedroom, like all of the interlocking covers of X-Men 1, like as, as as the wallpaper or what? I mean, like, I just have I mean, 90s X-Men. I just have to think. I, I, actually, my dad, as I started getting older and I was like, I don't like Elmo. I like I like comic books. Please put Spider-Man stuff in my room. He decided to get all of his old comics and just kind of like line the walls with them. Like they're all in covers with boards and everything and, and plastic, but he would tack through the uh, the plastic part and kind of have them all like lined up around the whole room. So there was just like Daredevils and X-Men and Spider-Man and even like Lethal Protector Venom books. And just any random day, I would just point to one and go, tell me what happens in that one. And he would either get it off the wall and show me or just like, just kind of run it down from memory. 
you are both like presenting me a like better alternative version of what my childhood could be or <laughs> what some some distant future where I have a kid and I'm subjecting them to the same thing. So like it, it's cool. It's cool to, to, to hear this from you. Well, that's what I think is like the coolest thing about comic books as a fandom is it's very generational. It's something that gets passed down a lot. Like, you know, we all have a different experience with these characters and we all have different runs that we love, but it's always cool kind of passing it down and explaining it to someone else. Because like my little sister, I was a pretty big age gap. I'm eight years older than her and she's like just turned 13. So I'm always explaining this stuff to her. I'm like, oh yeah, here's, here's how Venom got his powers. Or I would like show her episodes of some of the cartoons to just kind of explain stuff quickly because listening to me ramble about it for three hours might not get it across as well as maybe like a 20 minute episode. Well, very cool. Speaking of, you know, cartoon episodes, let's talk about the topic we're here to talk about. First up, we're going to be talking about Spider-Man from 1981. And boy, I had never seen this show before. And I was so thrilled to have an opportunity to watch this for this show. I guess I'm curious, like, do any of you have a history with this show prior to us, like, assigning this to watch? One of my earliest memories growing up was that my parents, I think they got it from my grandparents, had an old VHS tape that had, like, a bundle of episodes from both shows that I would just, like, kind of watch and rewatch because, like, that was the only thing I really had on at the time. Because, you know, there were there wasn't always you didn't always get to choose whenever these cartoons would come on TV but if I wanted to watch Spider-Man it was probably one of these tapes so the episodes of uh Black Cat from the 81 series and maybe a couple of others were definitely ones I remember and then from Amazing Friends the X-Men crossover episode was the one that I always watched yeah, similarly, I mean, and this was kind of, I, I think I mentioned this in the last episode, Dan, I, I kind of had an inadvertent real, you know, deja vu moment with, with this series specifically where we were, I was watching, or re, I guess now rewatching one of the episodes, it was the one where Dr. Doom had the, what do you call it, the, the bomb under New York City. And I'm like watching this and like the dialogue from it, like all of a sudden starts coming back to me. And I'm like, I have seen this episode before. Where have I seen this episode? And, you know, Dr. Google was my friend. And I remember there was a a VHS compilation of Dr. Doom episodes. So it was some of the original 1960s Fantastic Four. And then they decided to stick this episode on as kind of like a bonus episode and and I, I just I remember wearing the like there was a whole series of VHS and maybe this is the same ones that you had, Xavier. They were actually each one was focused on a different villain. So I had a Doctor Doom tape and I had a Red Skull tape and the Red Skull tape. I think might have had that the Spidey Captain America episode, too, but I couldn't figure that out for certain. But this Doctor Doom episode ep- was definitely on the, the cassette. And I just was like, oh, man, that's. That's a that's a memory from the Wayback Machine. I also had a VHS tape with I think I remember vividly the Amazing Friends episode with the Juggernaut, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. And, and it probably had episodes from this show on if Xavier's memory is correct. But that was the one that really stood up my mind. So for me, this was kind of like a brand new experience uh, of this show. So let's talk about it. Spider-Man from 1981. It was very short lived. Mark, why don't you tell us a little bit about the history of the show? Well, I guess we can go back to in 1981, Fritz Freeling. Is that my saying that name right, Dan Freeling or is my, is your guess as good as mine? Okay. So he 
left the company he founded to Patty Freeling Enterprises to resume his former job with Warner Brothers Animation. And that sparked the sale of the company to Cadence Industries, which also owned Marvel Comics Group. So it was renamed Marvel Productions, and the company decided to use Spider-Man as kind of one of their launch programs as a way to attract network attention to Marvel's other properties and potentially bring them to television. You know, Spider-Man was always kind of the linchpin for, you know, going, you know, expanding the brand of Marvel. So... The Patty Freeling Enterprises, their previous work with Marvel was uh, 1978's Fantastic Four show, which is probably best known for the fact that it did not have a human torch in it. It said it was, what, Herbie? Herbie? And then they also did a Spider-Woman show, which we'll probably get into later in the season, spoiler alert, when we talk about Spider-Woman in terms of, you know, Marvel trying to get some branding in on Spider-Woman. So they created a comic and an animated series about that. Have you guys ever seen either of those shows? I mean, the Spider-Woman was just added to Disney Plus, and I think it's the first time it's been commercially available ever. And so I decided to check it out, and I checked it out, and then I checked out because I just was not interested in it. It was very strange and not that great. Yeah, I, I kind of skimmed through it a little bit. I, I turned it on kind of out of curiosity because I was like, is Spider-Man going to be in this? I feel like they they wouldn't let this character stand on her own. She would have to be like introduced via him. And then I was I was right. And then in the first episode, he plays kind of a, a part. But I don't know. I, I wasn't paying too much attention to it. There was some weird plot about them going to Egypt. And there was magic. And there was mummies, I think. So not a good Spider-Man story. I feel like they're bound to repeat all the mistakes the comics made when Spider-Man was first introduced. It's like, what kind of villains work with Spider-Man? Oh, of course, aliens, you know, and that that would all be retconned later. You know, I feel like the TV shows just repeat these kind of strange errors over and over again until they, they find their groove. I never saw the Spider-Woman show, but I definitely have vague memories of that Fantastic Four show because I do remember Herbie. But like, again, this this was probably years and years ago, and I couldn't even tell you the exact context of how I saw that show, but I've not seen it probably since I was like six or seven years old. So that's that's eons ago, people. So, yeah. So this this show, Spider-Man 1981, it first debuted September 12th in 1981, obviously. And, you know, the reason a lot of people haven't seen it is it only ran for 26 episodes, one season and, you know, ending March in 1982. So like it didn't have a lot of longevity and, you know, it, you know, it re-aired a little bit in syndication as part of the Marvel Action Universe animation block. But in the late 80s, but, you know, between 81 and the late 80s, it didn't run and there really wasn't much familiarity with it. But of course, now you can watch it on Disney Plus. It's all there. And when, you know, they were advertising it as like the lost show when they were kind of plugging it on Disney Plus and. I think they're kind of right about it. I mean, it's not been widely viewed. Yeah, I mean, well, compare certainly compared to Amazing Friends, which will I mean, we'll get into the 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 logistics of that in a little bit. But like this, you know, when you put the two of them side by side, I mean, they're both they both come out on the same date. But one gets like, you know, the Saturday morning network block. And then this one was just just kind of made for syndication and kind of languishes in that like no man's land forever and ever. I think that's why there's not as much as like nostalgia associated with this one. Like everyone knows Amazing Friends, everyone knows Iceman because of that show. Like everyone even brings up Firestar, even though she hasn't really been in anything since then substantially. But like 
the, the, that one just was on at the right time and had like the right audience for people to remember it and like make jokes about it. It, it can become like a pop culture reference thing. Well, as this 80, 81 cartoon is just like, you know, it, it's just the weird middle child between this and, or between amazing friends in the 60s. It's cartoon. funny that you say that uh, and you bring up the pop culture meme ability of this, because it's funny watching this through. I realized that like most a lot of the memes that I really like from Spider-Man are from this show. And I always figured they were from the 1960s show. And like, I mean, there's like the the Spider-Man wearing the like gold helmet or Spider-Man laying on the train tracks like they're all from this show. There's that frame from the X-Men crossover where he says, uh, Professor, you're a class act and does this hand sign and stuff. I yeah, that that was one of the ones that I kept seeing. You can always tell just because of the webs on the costume. Now, you're a big fan of the 90s cartoon, and I feel like one of the major like talking, you know, one of the major blurbs you hear about that show is like oh it was subject to censorship and the characters couldn't actually punch each other and we've had john semper on the show a number of times who's the showrunner of that show and he claims that that wasn't true and i don't know whether you can believe that or not but you know i'll take him at his word but for this show it actually was true they the characters couldn't punch each other so they found ways around it and pretty much every character had laser beams or something like that to make up for for that mistake. Not mistake, censorship, yeah. And to get real creative with what you could do with webbing to make that, that combat work. So, Mark, why don't you tell us a little bit about these, like the way the characters were designed? Right. So they were done by uh, Rick Holberg, and they were actually modeled after basically John Romita seniors when he came onto the book. So they kind of undicoized Peter, specifically his hair, uh, his haircut. The wardrobe was also kind of more modern. I, you know, always always with the turtlenecks, right? Which was again a Romitaism because Romita kind of theorized that. Peter would wear a turtleneck because it would be easier for him to hide his costume that way, which yeah, it makes sense, right? I mean, yeah, the, uh, I've I've done the hide your costume under the clothes thing. That collar comes up really high. Yeah, I mean, I'm also just thinking about how how warm a turtleneck is. I'm apt to sweat, so you know, <laughs> especially when you're standing next to Firestar. Exactly. Yeah, well, we'll get there. We'll get we'll we'll get there. You know, but you know, it's interesting too because the the costume is actually like a, a hoodie in this show. Like he brings it up and then they make very careful the detail the like hood going over the head and i'm not exactly sure how that like physically works but it's a unique design and they were very proud of it i actually kind of like it and i i think it i think it could work actually uh given a lot of the zentai suits that i've used to make my own spidey costumes always have like a front facing version of that so you kind of pull it up and back so having it work the other way Uh, If you just had like some snap buttons in the collar, I think you could pull that off. What was interesting about the show and why people haven't seen it is, you know, that halfway through the show, they basically found out that like they couldn't secure a network to air it. So they had to kind of come up with another alternative option. And so they added a bunch of gimmicks to the show, which is how we got Amazing Friends. So they had ditched the original concept halfway through the season, finished the season, and then rebooted the show as Spider-Man and his Amazing Friends so that they could ape off of DC's popular Super Friends cartoon at the time. And that's kind of what brought the death to this show, is just that like people didn't want a plain Jane Spider-Man show. I guess you couldn't sell enough toys. Which the 1990s Spider-Man show would prove disastrously wrong. So that's why the show 
has kind of languished in obscurity because it didn't really get that treatment. And the only time that I've really found that it was really released is weirdly, it was released in the UK officially under this banner, Spider-Man 5000. And I tried to figure out why 5000 other than the catchiness of everyone's favorite number 5000, but I couldn't find anything unless you guys can take a guess why 5000. Uh, it just it sounds cool it sounds futuristic and it it distinguishes it from the 60s cartoon by you know giving it something else because both of them are just called spider-man so. i mean maybe it has something to do uh, with that I, his his costume had that many more lines on it than compared to spider-man 67 <laughs> i mean there's there's my guess people <laughs> <laughs> that's a good guess so yeah that's uh that's a brief history of the 1981 Spider-Man show. Let's talk general thoughts about the show. We've kind of said a little bit about it. Xavier, like watching this through for this episode, what'd you think? I was actually surprised by how well it seemed to capture like a lot of like hallmarks of Spidey stories, like conflicts you would see in those, those types of comics around that time is like, you know, Peter was out all night fighting crime and then forgot to do his homework. So he gets in trouble at school the next day or like he falls asleep with his costume on and Aunt May walks in like a lot of like little things that are I just consider like what makes Spider-Man different from other superheroes is these kind of minor inconveniences in his personal life from being a superhero and like the 60s cartoon touched on them a little bit, but this was the one that really like went whole ham with it. And I think that was like really appreciated because you could just do something like the Japanese like live action show or like the Nicholas Hammond show and just completely throw all of that out and just just give him like a bat cave and like have him like driving a spider mobile on a spider plane and, you know, whatever toyetic thing. But they I think they actually really cared. Like they seem to get it. Yeah, I, I would agree with that wholeheartedly, especially when you compare it to other comic book based animated shows at the time. And like you said, the live action show, which kind of went in a completely different direction. I mean, yes, granted, this is not, you know, I feel we're spoiled by the Spider-Man 90s show and then some of the subsequent shows in terms of the the slickness and the, of the production values and kind of the intricacies of the plots of, of these uh, of these stories. I mean, obviously, you know, each each episode here is mostly self-contained. I mean, there's like one kind of overriding thread with Dr. Doom, kind of, although like that thread is just that he wants to be ruler of the world. Which is, you know, kind of as uh, uh, insane of a statement as it sounds, I guess. I don't know. Maybe it's not. But I mean, but overall, I feel like this this does kind of get at the heart of at least what Spider-Man was in the comics and, and in terms of the tone and the humor and the, and these little situations that Xavier was talking about, like the, the little nuances and the pratfalls of the character. And, and like, I don't know, like I, I legitimately enjoyed watching this in its own kind of kitschy way whereas you know when, when we get to amazing friends we'll go into more detail where that show just kind of seemed off the wall to me in terms of a concept although it's clearly the more popular show yeah i agree with both of you guys i think it, it what's great about this show is it's very spider-man like it never it never feels like a i mean well sometimes it does but mostly it feels like it's a it's a superhero universe and story that are uniquely something that you would tell in a Spider-Man story. It's always kind of bouncing between the supporting cast members and Peter's life and things like that. And it, it's this it seems like the writers really loved the comics. They just kind of like 
got it. And they worked in all kinds of little details. The humor is really great. And the way that the episodes are structured is like one of my favorite things. Is it like, it's always kind of balancing two plots, one that's like Peter Parker's life and one that's Spider-Man's life. And it, you know, does that classic Spider-Man thing where Spider-Man's life ruins whatever's going on for Peter. And very rarely does he get an, a full throated win. And to me, that made it seem like, okay, this is like a show actually about Spider-Man. And I really appreciated that. I think the 60s show got it somewhat. And maybe it's just the voice of that show that threw me off where, <laughs> you know, that big boost booming voice. But here, you know, Ted Schwartz, who does the voice here, it's like so on the money. And I, dare I say it, I think this voice is kind of like the prototypical Spider-Man voice that would kind of define the character moving forward. Like everybody seems to be aping a version of this. Well, it's, it's no Herbie the Elf, though, Dan. Let's 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 be real here. <laughs> no, it's not. Absolutely. Xavier, you do some like a lot of voiceover stuff. Like how did, what did you think about the voice in this show? Oh, yeah, I was actually caught off guard because uh, when I went back watching it, I was expecting Dan Gilvison's voice from Amazing Friends. So I was uh, not expecting to hear something that sounded different. And actually, uh, I, I would say a lot more fitting for the 81 show. Like he just there's a kind of certain like, there's a softness to his voice when he's Peter Parker that I, I think is really important that not a lot of shows capture as he just kind of sounds a lot more timid. But like the sarcasm as as Spider-Man when he like kind of puts on like the superhero mode, like he kind of does a pretty good job of both without it being very exaggerated like it was in the 60s cartoon where he almost in in that cartoon, he he sounded almost like he was trying to be like kind of cowardly as Peter. But no, it's it's not necessarily that it's more just a just a, a, a sort of. Yeah, softness. You know, he 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 doesn't seem like a, a guy you'd expect to throw punches. It's very, it's actually, I feel like very Ramita esque. Whereas, I mean, not that, not that I feel like Spider-Man sixty seven is more Dicko, but like, it's funny because you don't have MJ and Gwen, which was obviously the the hallmark of the Ramita comics. But like, otherwise, this feels very kind of a sixties aesthetic in terms of. The, the cast and the interaction and like you said that softness but obviously with I guess an 80s flair I don't know <laughs> yeah I think they wanted it to there's you know like a certain amount of brand synergy where they wanted it to look like what was current so they were going for that aesthetically while as the stories are a little bit more classic because if you're gonna pull from stuff might as well go for the earlier things because it's been around for a while and you know, you don't you have like a backlog of stories to adapt or at least take inspiration from instead of just waiting for whatever next issue comes out. I really loved how much the show focuses on New York itself. I mean, you get a lot of the iconic things like the Statue of Liberty and the you know the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center, which always sends me for a spin. But like to me, that was like really nice, it really gave it a good kind of sense of place and the the number one place that like i think really brings the show to life is the offices of the daily bugle we do a lot of focusing on that and i know the 60s cartoon did but here it feels more alive we get the first introduction of uh, robbie robertson which to, for my money this is the first on-screen appearance of robbie robertson correct i would say so yeah i don't remember him from any of the 60s episodes granted i didn't watch all of them but i definitely skimmed through a uh, pretty big portion of that show for my my review of the of it for the retrospective but 
yeah, I, I think this was the first one, and that may just be kind of like a time period thing a little bit. Is uh, 60s, having a character like Robbie might have not, I don't know, been something they were interested in, but around the 80s, that wasn't, you know, times had changed. You can be progressive in the pages of the comic, but not on screen is what, what you're suggesting. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, comics were always like this niche thing, but like the cartoons reach a, a greater audience. So maybe maybe some older mindsets were at play with not including him or having him anywhere. I, I don't know. But that that's purely speculation. I mean, I think it also might have something to do with the fact. I mean, I, I don't disagree, Xavier, but I also feel like part of it might be the fact that, I mean, Jonah himself was such a huge part of the show i mean he was a huge part of the show in 67 but like i feel like he was just kind of more of a punchline in 67 we're here i mean it's more of that meddlesome troublemaking jonah he's he's driving a lot more stories like i mean he's really like i mean i feel like every every episode is uh jonah either you know not not literally creating the scorpion or the human fly but like that level of meddling in terms of trying to overcome spider-man which is like you know kind of makes jonah almost the main through line as an antagonist in this show beyond dr doom i would say he's almost more of the antagonist than dr doom yeah right but it's well that old that old chestnut that we always talk about is is jonah ash well he's an antagonist but is he a villain i mean you know what i mean it's that whole thing i mean it's he's a thorn in his side for sure and then you know anyone who brings mortimer the nephew in is just no good to me i mean Mortimer, who we should just rename Cousin Oliver, in my opinion. He is co- he is the Cousin Oliver of the Spider-Man animated series. Yeah, what Mark's talking about is there's a character, Mortimer, who's Jonah's nephew that's introduced in the show that has, I've never seen in any other medium. And he's barely in the show. He's probably in like, what, four or five episodes overall. He just shows up to be like, I'll do it, Uncle Jonah. And then <laughs> that's that. It's like... <laughs> He's kind of like a he's like a Ned Leeds, but they wanted Betty to date Peter. So I guess they didn't want that like triangle thing going on because he's kind of competitive with Peter to be like the top photographer for the bugle. But he just can't get those pictures of Spider-Man because no one can get those pictures of Spider-Man. No, no, no. And uh, you know, a shout out to William Woodson, who does the voice of Jonah. He's got I couldn't I couldn't nail down what region of the world accent he's got in this. It's like somewhat european it's interesting but um curiously you know this show was competing with dc's super friend show and william woodson did both the narration on that show and the voice of jonah on this show so this guy was like dipping into both ponds you know whatever that that seems jamesonian weirdly i thought he also was really fitting for jonah in spite of the the kind of all over the place accent he still he just for some reason like the tone and the delivery still felt like kind of what I imagine Jonah to sound like. So it, it wasn't distracting, honestly. One of the things that distracted me, though, is like how Spider-Man's webs are utilized in the show. It's like it's like Green Lantern levels of absurd. Like he could be like, I want a table and boom, two seconds later, there's a web table. There was one moment where he actually makes a shovel, a functioning shovel out of out of webs and starts scooping dirt And then pulls just a cup out of nowhere and then puts like some like rocks in it, like these Mars rocks that Sandman stole and then covers it with with webs on the on the lid. And how did he I have no idea how any of this stuff came to be or how he did it so quickly. Well, hold on. If I can make a shovel out of twigs in Animal Crossing, he can make 
a shovel out of <laughs> webbing in in this show, okay? Like, I believe in Spider-Man. He even made the web wings and, like, actually gl- he glides around with them a little bit. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, I think, like, in early episodes. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that, like, drives me nuts on this show is the musical score. It's, like, clear their bu- their budget, like, covered maybe two songs. <laughs> and it's, like, and and it's, like one, one of them, them is, like... One of them was the theme. One of them is also, like, it's, like, a variation on, like, the... Uh, Daisy, Daisy, give me your answer, do. Like, it's like, it's like at, the, at the beginning of every episode, like this, like, kind of like interlude, you know, elevator music version of it. And I'm just like, ah, stop, stop playing that song. <laughs> it's not meant to be binged because this musical score just like drills into your brain. Like, I could hum it for you right now. I'm going to spare everybody that. But like, it's uh, it's it's a lot. And by a lot, I mean it's too little. It's it's like a it's That's like an, one of those things that works better week to week because you're not thinking about it as much. It's like an earworm if the worm was a murder hornet. <laughs> <laughs> Throw him back. Throw him back. <laughs> so speaking of murder, uh, you know the main villain, Mark. You were saying earlier is uh, it was like kind of Doctor Doom throughout the whole season, and I was surprised by this. Well, I mean, you're surprised by this, but keep in mind it's 1981, and and Dan, what is what is the biggest thing in pop culture in 1981? Star Wars or the Empire Strikes Back? I mean, I, I'm I'm surprised that we didn't get like the Imperial March backing up Doctor Doom here, but that will require them to make more music for the show, and that's not happening anytime soon. And I mean, is it my imagination or like in Dr. Doom's first appearance, like when I, I'm, I'm like listening to this for the first, I was actually on the treadmill running when I was watching this episode for the first time. And That's I was like, I watched all these episodes. Oh, there you go. Okay. I'm glad I'm not the only one, but I'm like saying to myself, holy crap, did they actually get James Earl Jones to do this? Like it sounded so much like Vader. And then I feel like as the show went on, they kind of like backed off that a little bit. Like they gave him a little less baritone, but I was just like, Whoa, they are just like leaning so far into Vader here. It's nuts. (laughs) There's even an episode of amazing friends where do they're fighting doom and the robots are basically like a bunch of Darth Vader's with lightsabers. Like they look identical to Darth Vader and they have green glowing lightsabers that Spider-Man catches at one point and waves around. And he's like, how do you use one of these things? And it's like, oh, my God, Star Wars has just straight up invaded this. I mean, it's all Star Wars, but then it's like everyone from Latveria is like basically from like the communist bloc. So, like, I guess they're like, re- you know, like also leaning into the Cold War. It's like it's like Boris and and, and Natasha basically are like the, 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 the citizens of Latveria, which I thought was kind of crazy. <laughs> And all of those stories are like giant world spanning arcs. Like nothing can be small with Doom. It's got to be master of the universe, master of the planet. He goes to the UN and like screams for fealty. I mean, the show is just obsessed with him. We even get like a whole episode about his origin. And I think Spider-Man's in the episode for like 30 seconds. And the rest of it is just like, how did Dr. Doom become Dr. Doom? I'm not even exaggerating. He's barely in the episode. It's also like he's in the intro more than any other villain in the whole show. He shows up like, I think, six or seven shots of him compared to like maybe like three or four of Green Goblin. Yeah, it's 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 a, it's a little odd, especially when you consider the companion show to this, which, you know, when we talk about it, only doesn't I think they feature Doom once, which is kind of weird, like like. If he was such a big thing, why wouldn't they find a way to use him with with amazing friends? But I mean, 
I, who knows? And like, again, like not to, like, I know we talk about this in the comics, Dan, and how this kind of drives you nuts. But like, again, given the scope of like some of Doom's plans here, like literal world domination, like there are crossover episodes with Captain America, with Namor, Kazar, no Fantastic Four, but like, why wouldn't like other Marvel heroes kind of be brought in and be like, whoa, whoa, like Spider-Man, we got your back here. It's not just you against this guy who's literally trying, who's literally taking over. Like the UN is like, okay, you win Doom, you own the world now. And I'm like, wait, 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 we're like, like you're telling me like Cap and Iron Man are just like, yeah, he's all, he's all yours, Spider-Man. <laughs> we're sitting this one out. <laughs> What's curious about the Doom stuff is like, you know, he, the first episode with him is him like going to the UN and, and, and like I said, asking everybody to join him or he kind of brainwashes everybody, which sounds vaguely familiar. But, you know, what's cool about it is if you've read the Spider-Man newspaper strip, that's kind of the first thing that he fights in the newspaper strip is like his first villain is Doom. And that exact plot plays out is the UN thing. So, again, like it's not so far into Spider-Man. Like these guys were fans, not just of the comic, but of the newspaper strip. And they worked that in to this. So like, there is some precedence for this. And it's, it's always weird seeing what stuff they end up taking as inspiration. Cause it's like completely random sometimes. Yeah. Uh, it does. It does seem random. Like, Oh, well, it's like a toy or some other thing. They also kind of bend to pop culture kind of things. Like there's a lot of like arcade stuff in amazing friends that starts popping up. Yeah. But uh, Yeah. We did get some other classic villains, though, like that we would associate with Spider-Man. Like you have Lizard, Craven the Hunter, Sadman, Mysterio, Kingpin, Vulture, and Green Goblin. And I, I really liked the Green Goblin episode a lot because I felt like this one, and again, compared to Amazing Friends, kind of leans in more into the actual comic book origin and regarding Norman Osborn and kind of like, especially like Norman's amnesia about Green Goblin, which... It was cool I mean, seeing that because the 60s cartoon didn't know who Osborn was by that point. So every yeah. time you see him, he has no secret identity. Exactly. So I, I enjoyed at least the portrayal of that. I mean, you know... Craven is kind of ridiculous in this show. And of course, that's also the Kazar episode, which is just overall like bonkers. But like, you know, Lizard, Sandman, Mysterio. I mean, like the, these most like, mostly feel pretty true again to these characters. And Doc Ock, Doc Ock is the first villain kind of similar to 67. He was the first villain. Uh, there were some new villains, too, Dan. I know that you're fans of all of them, right? <laughs> Absolutely. I did. I did want to mention that the Craven Kazar episode is interesting because it's kind of a retelling of the Craven Gog story down in the Savage Land from Amazing Spider-Man, what, 102? So that's pretty neat. So that's cool. We would never hear of Gog again. <laughs> no. <laughs> Stay tuned for the Patreon um, episode. No, sorry. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but yeah, you know, the, another thing that's interesting to note is like the black cat shows up in this series. And like, this is like what a, a couple months or a year after she was introduced in the comics. Like it was like immediately from the comics to the screen and she's fully formed. And, and what's interesting about all the villains in the show, like the main Spider-Man villains is they don't really tell you their backstory except for like Norman, because I think they kind of like expected you to have seen the sixties show. It almost makes me wonder, did they intend for that to be in continuity with this one? It seems that way in some aspects they kind of leaned onto that there's a couple of contradictions i think somewhere around there but like just the fact that like betty and jonah are like the only people you know at the bugle on both shows and like there's no other love interests it kind of makes you wonder 
It feels more like a sequel for sure. Yeah, I mean, this feels more like a sequel than Amazing Friends being a sequel to this. I would say. Yeah, that 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 does that is very accurate for sure. You know, there were a ton of great voice actors on the show playing these kind of infamous characters. So like. The Red Skull was voiced by Peter Cullen, who did Optimus Prime and Eeyore. The Lizard, interestingly enough, and I could not get this out of my head when I was watching the show, is voiced by Corey Burton, who did Captain Hook in the Disney Peter Pan. And every time he talked, that's all I could hear was Captain Hook. The Vulture is Don Messick, who did the voice of Scooby-Doo and Bam Bam and a whole other host of Hanna-Barbera characters. And most interestingly, Neil Ross, speaking of the Goblin, he played the Green Goblin here, both Norman and the Green Goblin. And he would later reprise that role not only in Amazing Friends, although there he only played the Green Goblin. But in the 1994 Spider-Man, the animated series, he played Norman and the Green Goblin again. So there's some kind of like voice continuity across like uh, whatever, like 15 years of uh, Spider-Man cartoons. I I also really appreciate his range because there's some scenes in uh, like a couple of the different cartoons where he's both 81 and I think the 90s show where he's going back and forth between the Norman and like goblin voice like mid sentence and it's like really impressive how different they sound from each other so the green goblin famous villain we all love the green goblin but there's a lot of like really bizarre new villains that are introduced in the show such as Goron stuntman and his triangle of evil you gotta have a triangle of evil. It's better than the square of evil. There's the sidewinder who is this, it's hard to describe. He's like a man in a suit with like a face mask that looks like some kind of like, like Hauzu monster and a top hat. And he rides around on a Pegasus with like a group of bandits who also have Pegasuses. And they, I believe they joust Spider-Man at some point. I don't know what is up with this design, but wait, Sidewinder. Wait, did, I, I'm just getting over the fact that you just pluralized Pegasuses. I, I, sorry. Anyway. Is it Pegasi? <laughs> proceed, Dan. Proceed. I'm sorry. It just distracted me. Yeah. <laughs> Sidewinder, uh, he he would never reappear again, and I think for good reason. There's the Gadgeteer. He's like this like purple dressed balding. I say that fondly as a bald man himself. <laughs> balding like janitor who decides to like get in like a purple onesie with like a face mask and rob everybody. I don't know why it wasn't just the Tinkerer, but okay, the Gadgeteer. There's Professor Gizmo, and then there's Nephilia who is this, like, uh, he wants Spider-Man's powers, but he ends up turning himself into a man-spider, which, like, I guess this is the first appearance of a man-spider. And then because they couldn't use the burglar, they brought in, you know, the burglar that killed Uncle Ben. They brought in the burglar's cousin, which, fine. And yet... Great. They couldn't reveal Mortimer as a villain, which just really upsets me. But anyway. Yeah. (laughs) Makes me wonder if, like... The reason for all the original villains, like much like the 60s cartoon, is did they have to because like these days it's usually like the character rights are kind of bundled together. You know, you just you get Spider-Man, you get his villains. But back then, I feel like it was more of like a case by case basis. So they had to purchase the license for every individual character or something like and maybe it was just easier to sometimes throw in some random something like a guy riding a Pegasus just to just to fill for an episode because they couldn't afford someone like Tinkerer or or something. I mean, it's possible. But the thing is, like, there's I don't I mean, is there anyone from, you know, this era of rogues that 
you know, is truly missing. I, I can't think of someone where I'm like, ah, you know, I'm, well, I guess there's no Electro episode, right? There was an Amazing Friends. Right, but right. like, not in 81. Yeah, that's what I'm just saying. Like, I mean, like, it's not like... They got I, all the big ones. Yeah, it's not like they're coming at the expense of some, like, you know, I mean, we even get a Magneto episode, which is kind of cool, too. But, yeah, I mean, you know, you always got to wonder, are they just trying to see, like, you know, they can hit on something without having the creators on. We can't, you know, we can't verify. But it's like, I'm sure there's some fun if you're working on a, on a Spider-Man property, like, oh, I want to be able to create the next Spider-Man villain. You know what I mean? Like, this is a character, obviously, that's... Yeah, there, there's a lot of people who want to, I mean, even though it hadn't been done yet, but a lot of people wanting to do, like, kind of like the Harley Quinn or X-23 thing is like, I want to contribute a character that, you know, will eventually be brought into the comics. That That could also be a an explanation i mean that's like what happened with like batgirl in the 60s batman show well we're all just dying for a sidewinder issue of amazing spider-man it's coming it's coming i mean dan slot dan <laughs> slot could probably deliver it dan so careful what you ask for okay <laughs> yeah 100 percent. so like the last thing to really talk about here is peter's love life i mean it's it's not that fleshed out, but it's more than it was in the 60s. And, you know, I, they went with Betty here, which I think, you know, as far as I can tell, is this the only one where Betty is presented as, as his love in in an animated show? Well, 67. Well, I mean, she was yeah. in the 60s cartoon. Was she? Um, oh, yeah. then I'm totally forgetting yeah. that. Yeah. Um, yeah. She was the main female counterpart, I guess, for that one. Because, like, the others, I don't think the others even, like, existed yet, maybe. Yeah. But it's but it's odd to me that like so she's there, but like MJ and Gwen are not. And okay, I, I can understand maybe not wanting to bring Gwen in because then like you know, how do you explain that she's dead in the comics? But no MJ. And if you want to say well MJ was basically written out by this point, but Betty Brant was like married to Ned Leeds, and like Peter being with her was like having an affair in the comics at this point. So like I I, I and again like they they're dating, but it's not like. I, I never get the sense that they're, they're this like truly like like long-standing relationship. It's kind of more of just a fling, and I don't know. Like I, I'm I'm a sucker for Peter having a love life. Whether I mean you know it's it's never going good for him, but like I don't know. I feel like I want something more than this, and I feel like that's something that's kind of absent. I, I don't know. I I was okay with it in a couple of places. Like there was the whole there was the black cat episode where she asks him to t- go out on a date, and he he takes Betty Brant to like some live show, but he has to sneak out as Spider Man because he's also the guest on this show. <laughs> uh, so he's like, "Hold on, I'll be right back. I just gotta go to the bathroom." And then Spider Man swings in. She's like, "That Peter's missing it. This is so cool." And like by the end of that episode, she's so mad at him for bailing that she ends up like kind of jokingly taking Jonah out for a date while while Peter is just like damn it I can't do both and like I I kind of appreciated that it it ended with him not having a win necessarily like you know he he caught the black cat he he beat the bad guy and you know saved the day as Spider-Man but then he gets back into Peter Parker outfit and then just gets kind of like a little bit of a middle finger and that's just like like I said that feels the very on brand for the character you know, at least for the early stuff before the actual relationships started, you know, going on for longer than that kind of scenario. We're going to uh, move on and each of us is going to share an episode that we recommend or think is special in some way. So we're going to go in order that they were released. So that makes you up first, Xavier. You're talking about an episode. You Tell us which one you chose. I chose The Sandman is Coming. I actually thought that episode was 
just it impressed me particularly because I felt like it had like everything that I specifically look for in Spider-Man stories. Like I, I like, you know, the the mechanics of having to deal with costume repair and like that kind of thing. So it was kind of cool how his costume gets all shredded, like his mask gets pulled off by Sandman and he has to go swinging around for a little while until he can get back home to fix it and put on another one. I like the amount of near misses with his secret identity because Aunt May accidentally almost sees the the costume in his closet a handful of times. There's also like, you know, Peter Parker gets screwed over by Spider-Man saving the day kind of thing where he gets reported to his school by like some some girl he was on like a like an assignment with for kind of bailing out as soon as Sandman showed up and he has to go explain that before he ends up getting like kicked out of school and now there's like this ticking clock element of he has to catch Sandman and stop stop him you know his like crime spree but also go clear his name with like the board at his school and then I just also really love that uh scene where he gets tied to the train tracks and like there's that little exchange where Jonah is trying to take pictures of him uh, you know like tied up looking like an idiot and I I thought like all of the dialogue in that scene just felt very on brand for both characters. Like they both just sound like Spider-Man and Jonah, even in like a modern comic and like the little witty retorts and, and sarcastic remarks just like were really cool to me. Then also the episode ends with one, like one of my other favorite Spider-Man things that I think doesn't get enough appreciation from like certain adaptations is like, he outsmarts the villain and just kind of like, he doesn't necessarily need to brute force it to beat them. He just comes up with a way to let them beat themselves essentially by leading Sandman through like a car wash and then to a construction site where he gets, you know, covered in like wet cement. And then the combination of the two basically turns him into a statue that, that just kind of reminded me of stories like nothing stops the juggernaut or like, you know, that early kind of stuff where he's always, coming up with a really clever and sly way to beat them without actually having to just like punch, punch his way out. So yeah, it's just, I like that episode. I feel like it's a, it's a good episode to just represent the whole show. It's just like, it has a little bit of everything. And Sandman is such a good villain to have him outsmart in that way, because otherwise Sandman, he's kind of, you know, punching above his weight and trying to apprehend him. So like he always has to kind of be yeah. extra creative there. So yeah. Mark, what about you? What episode did you choose? Yeah, well, you know, obviously, Dan, as we talked about in season three, I'm a, I'm a big apologist for Marvel team up. So granted, I'm going to pick a team up episode. I, I picked uh, <laughs> episode 18, which is the capture of Captain America. I'm also kind of a, a sucker for, for a cap story. But like part of the reason why I like this beyond the fact that I thought it was kind of a really good functional team up premise was the fact that, you know, we're, 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 we're kind of playing with some classic Spidey predicaments and that, you know, he's basically trying to kind of prove himself to Cap by by saving him from this this plot from the Red Skull from being captured. And of course, you know, due to Spidey's kind of inadvertent incompetence, Cap gets captured anyway. <laughs> so then like, you know, now that, that Cap has been captured, P- 
Peter has to kind of think of a way to both redeem himself, but also like not get his his idol killed. You know, we have some, you know, I guess proto Amazing Spider-Man 700 action going on here with the Red Skull trying to swap minds with Captain America that, you know, that's a kind of the master plot here where he's going to put, you know, Cap's brain in Red Skull's body. So, you know, combining or, or excuse me, the other way around, putting Red Skull's mind in Cap's body. So basically combining the brilliance of the Red Skull with Cap's, you know, immortal physique and physicality but but spidey of course does find a way to kind of save the day clumsily a la another one of my favorite controversial moments of spider-man history kind of throwing himself onto the the container to free the avengers against thanos in marvel 2 and 1 annual number two one of the most essential issues of spider-man of all time dan <laughs> of course of course changed my mind <laughs> anyway no so it's 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 got that classic ele- the, the classic spider-man elements of of success you know kind of in spite of himself after kind of setting himself you know basically failing into success and also it's just a fun team up episode and it just kind of felt different and and unique especially in the in the long line of all these doom episodes i just i just liked how you know like it was probably of all the guest star episodes although i'm I'm probably going to offend you dan based on your next choice i i felt it was the best of all like kind of the guest starring episodes in terms of a crossover I don't disagree with you. I love that Spider-Man has to kind of like dress up as Captain America to, to thwart everyone. And that that's fun. To, whenever Peter kind of has to assume the mantle of somebody else. I, I enjoyed that a lot about this episode. Yeah, it was just a lot of quirky elements. But what's yours, Dan? <laughs> yeah, you mentioned mine. Mine, I mean, I chose after you. So like you may have grabbed my favorite, but I actually really liked the return of Kingpin. It's the, you know, the, the, actually the first Kingpin episode, I guess that he's returning from another show or he's returning to power. This one is a team up with Spider-Man and Namor, which is not really a team up I'm that fond of. I mean, I think about like the Denny O'Neill run of Spider-Man where Namor and him teamed up, which we talked about on a previous episode. But what I like about this episode is the kind of like psychological element of it is that like Kingpin is using all of his resources to trick Spider-Man into like thwarting crime, but it's like thwarting crime so that he can benefit off of it. And we kind of saw this in the ultimate Spider-Man comic. At one point, there was a whole arc about this where it's, you know, Spider-Man was kind of torn between stopping crime and aiding the Kingpin. And I like that. Like I thought that this show was being clever. It also features like fun Kingpin beating up a bunch of goons, which, which is great. I love his training sequences where he just like has men, that whose only job it is for him to pummel. That's a lot of fun. And I love the kind of deep cuts that appear in this episode. There's like a bunch of other rival gang lords and that's like Hammerhead, Man Mountain Marco makes an appearance, Silvermane, and like really obscurely, Caesar Cicero shows up from the Lifeline tablet issues. And to me, that's like, they don't have any speaking lines. They're just there in the background. And to me, that suggests these creators like, really love the comic books or at least they did their homework and yeah and that means a lot to me i i i really appreciated that but yeah that's my pick is the return of kingpin but look if if you want to talk about spider-man we've got a special place for you to do so mark why don't you tell us about this Oh boy, yeah. So hundreds of listeners like you hang out in our community of Spider-Man fans on the Slack. 
The amazing Spider Slack community is absolutely free to join, and you can jump into active conversations with awesome people about collecting, conventions, movies, new comics, old comics, and more. Yeah, Mark, I'm there all the time. Just this week, we were talking about how disturbing it is that Marvel released a Mary Jane toy with an interchangeable Gwen Stacy head. And, well, I mean, I don't know how you feel about that, but it made for an interesting conversation nevertheless. So, yeah, just follow the link in the description and be sure to say hi. Let us know what you thought of the episode if you join us there in our amazing Spider Slack. But, yeah, we're back and we're going to talk about our next topic And uh, that is the daunted and I guess like very well remembered Spider-Man and his amazing friends. Spider-Man and his amazing friends, Iceman and Firestar. We're here to talk about... <laughs> Sorry. We'll we'll be you exclusively singing this portion of the show. Yeah. So yeah, we talked a little bit about this. Mark, tell us a little bit more about the history of this show. Right. Well, it debuted again September 12, 1981, but this was on NBC's Saturday morning cartoon block. So thus far more exposure. And it was uh 24 it was it was just basically the same number of episodes of Spider-Man 81, but they broke it up into three seasons, although they're very oddly segmented seasons like seasons one is episodes one through 13 and then season two is only 14 through 16 which were the the three origin episodes Uh, and then the final season which is episode 17 through 24 they brought in stan lee actually to narrate portions of the season and as you alluded to in the intro dan this was envisioned as a competitor to abc's super friends series which was kind of the the dc justice league show so it basically runs 81 through 83 and then it ran three additional years on NBC as reruns before showing up in that live action or not live action that Marvel action block with Spider-Man 81 I think the Hulk animated series was part of that block too so I mean you know kind of a similar trajectory but like this one gained far more traction and I think being on NBC for essentially six years probably had a lot to do with the fact that it's being you know far more remembered than the other series. Mark, you're a little bit older than Xavier and myself. Do you remember watching this on TV when you were a kid yeah, or did you miss this? 100%. I mean, I was too, I mean, as as old as I am, <laughs> I didn't <laughs> I didn't see it ori- in the original run like 81 to 83. I mean, I was I was 2 in 80 in 1983, but like I I definitely have memories in like the mid 80s. So figure 85 86 waking up on a Saturday morning and watching this show. So I, I couldn't tell you which episodes I saw back then, but I definitely I was a total Saturday morning cartoon junkie as a kid that age. And this was part of that that block of shows for sure. Xavier, when did you first kind of like was it that VHS tape that first exposed yeah, you to this? Yeah, because uh, it was that VHS tape that was just like a block of a couple episodes. The one that I remember most vividly was the X-Men crossover. But eventually, like they started airing reruns of this on like I think like disney xd or something like there was there was a, a tv channel that would start playing a couple of old episodes every once in a while and like i must have been like 10 or 11 around that time so i would occasionally catch them on there and like kind of 
you know, see what the fuss was all about. Cause I know people were still like, even back then I knew people would reference this show and talk about it, but I had only seen like a little bit of it. And for me, it was all about that VHS tape. And I, I always remember being like, okay, I know Iceman, I know Spider-Man, but I have no idea who this Firestar yeah. character What's is. What's the deal? Uh, Mark, what was the deal with this? What's the deal What's with Firestar? What's the deal with Firestar? Well, she's not quite human she's torch. She's my favorite Teen Titan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so basically, uh, it sounds like the, you know, in terms of friends to pair with Spider-Man, they wanted to do a fire and ice motif. And, and obviously, Johnny Storm would have been the ideal choice i mean he was literally like spider-man's best frenemy from the comics but as we alluded to earlier in the show there were some rights issues hence herbie the robot and that fantastic four series which was you know run by the same production company so they decided instead to create an original character angelica jones firestar to be the 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 fire element of the show and so she was created specifically for this cartoon but she would eventually make her comics debut in uncanny x-men number 193 in 1985 so although i don't feel i'm not an x-reader and you know i'm not gonna pin it on you xavier despite your name but like i don't feel like (laughs) she's ever been a main main character in x-men right i mean it's just always you know she's kind of just popped up from time to time right even in spite of my name, I don't really read X-Men books either. I just, as far as I know about Firestar in the comics, it's just that Bendis made Liz Allen Firestar in, right. in the ultimate run. There, Yeah, there was a whole, like, amazing Friends arc for a little while there in the ultimate book that I thought was kind of neat, but weird. Yeah, they actually live with Peter and Aunt May, just like in this series, you know, and it becomes a bit of a flop house for young superpowered people but uh, yeah i mean i i kind of like firestar she's got a lot of personality about her i mean she carries with her a lot of like nasty tropes that you know i think we wouldn't see today obviously where everybody is hitting on her constantly yes but like uh, you know (laughs) yeah the the design of the costume is neat and yeah (laughs) you know one of the things i like about this show if we're just talking you know kind of broad historical things it's like thank god they added more songs to the musical score i mean all of our favorites come back but at least it's broader in its scope this time around there's like there's like four songs instead of two (laughs) (laughs) i'll take it i'll take it that brings up the question like is this a sequel to the original Spider-Man show. You said earlier, Mark, that you felt like the original, that 1981 Spider-Man show is more of a sequel to the 60s show than this was to the 81 show. Like, where do those discrepancies lie for you? Well, I mean, there's there's a few. I mean, talking specifically from the plot, like, you know, and there are, there are other people on the internet who have theorized about this, but like, you know, one of the things that people like to point out, like, is this a sequel? Is it a companion show? Whatever. If you look at, the Red Skull and Doctor Doom, who both show up in this. I mean, in, in Spider-Man 81, those characters are are kind of left for dead by the end of their their appearances. You know, Doom at the end of his arc and then the Red Skull in that episode with Captain America that we talked about earlier. And they show up here pretty much alive and, and, and unchecked. However, it seems like Magneto, when he shows up here, kind of alludes to the Spider-Man 81 episode that he shows up in. So, I mean, a little, you know, there's a little bit of inconsistency but just in general like these shows are, are essentially concurrently produced shows and like 
never at any point does like Spider-Man kind of allude to his life without Firestar and Iceman. Like, hey, I'm also having adventures on my own, guys. You know what I mean? It's just kind of like, no, we're 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 a team, and this is this yeah, is yeah. There, it I it had to have taken place before them. Yeah, they're very independently staged, and it just so happens that they were released around the same time with the same production company with similar sounding scores and and animation styles. But like, I don't. Yeah, because I, like. Peter and Spidey, like both are, if I'm not mistaken, it's pretty much the same design across both shows. Like, like I think they might have used the same like model sheets or whatever. But like, where he lives with Aunt May is different. Aunt May, I think, has a design change. Like Jonah doesn't necessarily have the same look. Like every, for, for some reason, he's like the only character I remember being very, like, explicitly the same across both shows everyone else has like little tweaks here and there well the voices are all different even spider-man's voice dan gilvazian i mean he he totally different yeah, nah, why why even recast he was the first guy was so good yeah i mean the only reason i like dan gilvazian is because his his name is so similar to mine that i get mistaken for him in the spider-man community every now and again that feels like a real step down for 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 me the the voice acting is just not as good oh for sure and like i forgot his name the guy who plays fred and scooby-doo a lot and is Iceman in this either chime in please help me remember his name dan help (laughs) i don't i don't know it oh no yeah (laughs) No I know I didn't. I don't have it, but I I I, I could live I could live stream on IMDb. Hold on. <laughs> okay, this is great, guys. Talk amongst yourselves while I search. <laughs> okay, but anyway, yeah, a lot of the characters are very clearly just that same voice, like Flash Thompson and Shocker, and Frank Welker. Like a lot of random Frank Welker. That's what it is. I feel like an idiot for not remembering that. Like he's he's still working today. He's so prolific. But yeah, it was it became distracting how many reused voices there were. I think even at some point during that X-Men crossover episode, Cyclops had the same voice as Spider-Man and like whoever voiced like Nightcrawler sounded like three other characters like they really didn't have a big cast to work with and it's it become it kind of takes you out of the moment a little when two characters sound exactly the same and are talking to each other. And I still don't quite get what they were going for with Wolverine and his voice. Is he is he trying to be like Gambit? I, I don't get it. <laughs> it's two different cartoons around that time where Wolverine was Australian for no reason. Because there's also the pilot episode of that X-Men show that never took off. Pride of the X-Men. He was Australian in that too. I, I don't know what the connection is there. Maybe we should look into that sometime. Okay. I mean, Canadian, Canadian and Australian, I mean... Right? No, no. Basically the same thing. Mm, yeah, know? right? <laughs> same, not even the same hemisphere. <laughs> they both got koalas, whatever. You guys are floating around the bigger point, which is that like the cast in this show was enormous compared to the Spider-Man 81 show because every show was like 20 new cast members because of how broad this show gets into the Marvel Universe. And let's just talk about our general thoughts on the show. And I'll just get right to it, which is like, I think this show is insane. I think it is completely bonkers. You're stealing my word, Dan, because bonkers is just the word that keeps coming back to me. This is this show is totally nuts. It makes no sense. It's like, I mean, like 
as much as comics don't make sense, like I, I, I'm, I literally like hurt myself trying to actually do the mental gymnastics it takes for me to kind of figure many elements of this show out. But I mean, maybe I'm just being unfair to it. Yeah, this one definitely feels like a lot more superhero cartoons around the time. Well, as 81 felt much like an adapt, like just a direct adaptation. Here's, you know, here's what Spider-Man is. This is just like those types of shows where it's like character and like a little bit of their their lore thrown in, but then just a lot of crazy other stuff that they shouldn't be doing, like falling in love with space aliens and time traveling and whatever. Like it's it's just off the wall because I think maybe they thought that that would be more toyetic you could get more you could get more stuff to turn into like products that way if you weren't just directly going for spider-man-esque stories yeah and it also just plays into the fact i mean like as a saturday morning cartoon i mean like you kind of like have to be over the top i mean think about like all the other shows that were on at this time i mean like it, it, it's i think a straight up superhero adaptation for the 80s would just like an 80s cartoon would not work like this. I mean, this is like, it, yeah, it's fanciful. It's crazy. You know, Spider-Man we're, we're, 81 kind of proved to us because that it didn't catch on. Like it, it did. It did the job that we're looking for as fans of the character. But like it wasn't that thing that was going to catch on and become like a sensation like they were hoping for. Yeah, because I feel like the holes that we see in it. And like the 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 logical fallacies that we see in it, we're only seeing it because our our point of comparison are the comics. But if like you're just some kid coming to this fresh, being like, oh man, like Spider Man's awesome, I love Ice Man's awesome, I love these things. Like they're you know again, you're they're not carrying that like those Spider- those kids are just coming off of like Johnny Quest and that kind of yeah thing. yeah like like the fact that they have this secret lair that like kind of turns inside and outside in Aunt May's house like Which what the hell so play set ready <laughs> the most like oh boy mm-hmm. I, I, I if there if I don't know for sure because I never had it because I grew up way after the show. But I, I absolutely could see that being like one of those like playset gimmick things where it's like, a, oh, look, it's their, you know, their goofy uh, college student apartment. But you pull this lever and suddenly everything flips around. And then like it's just it's missing bat poles almost is, is how close it is to something like that. Yeah, definitely, definitely Batman esque for sure, and 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 you know, again, like we're we're sitting here like arguing about it because like, oh, that would in the comics, like Peter would never be able to hide something that sophisticated in Aunt May's house. It's like- <laughs> would be able to afford it. I think that that's like that's another thing is because in the episode I wanted to talk about, there's an intro from Stan Lee going, "We heard you, or we've been hearing your questions. We want to answer this for you." How could all these college students who rarely have money afford all of this high-tech equipment? Well, we're going to answer your question for you. Like, I think people even back then were starting to question it a little bit for them to have to write that into the narration. I I could see that being like a big fan mail, like contention thing. Like, how the hell is all this coming together? Or maybe this was just like Stan Lee, like watching the cartoon for the first time and being like, wait, what happened? No, I I have questions. He would be like, I don't. That's not how that's supposed to look. Like, maybe he was maybe he was some executive meddling on his part. And he actually kind of tried to improve the show, which I honestly don't have a problem with because, you know, I think his input was valuable. I feel like the contemporary for this show in terms of modern shows to compare it to is probably the ultimate Spider-Man cartoon. It feels like oftentimes that like this show is more interested in exploring the rest of the Marvel universe through the eyes of Spider-Man 
like we get very little of Peter Parker's life in this other than handling how he hides all this from Aunt May, which is just by tugging on a statue. But, you know, there are full episodes where like Spider-Man does almost next to nothing. Like there's one with Thor where he's trapped inside of like a gem and that's it, you know, and it's a Thor story where Thor is fighting a cloned Thor, which is actually Loki. You know, it, it, it's got that kind of like Marvel team up crazy plots from the comics. But in terms of cartoon shows, it really feels like that ultimate Spider-Man show. And yet and yet the origin episode for Peter, because they do they do three different origin episodes. We'll talk a little bit more about one of them in a bit. But like the Peter one is just like straight out. I mean, like not even like literally Amazing Fantasy 15. I mean, it's just like pay, almost page for page. I also noticed, I think that episode had like a higher budget than a lot of the other ones because something about it just looks a lot more uh, just modern and professional. Like it looked more like the 90s cartoon. There was like actual shading on the cell animation. The backgrounds were more detailed and had like a sort of grit to them. Like it wasn't as bright and poppy and colorful. Like it had sort of a visual style that... For, for some reason, that episode just doesn't look like a lot of the other ones I remember. Yeah, it was just totally jarring for me considering how off the wall everything else about the show is that they do this, you know, this origin episode for Peter. And you're like, oh, wow, this is like like straight straight out of the comics. That's that's impressive. That's kind of what it felt like with the 60s cartoon is like here's a lot of, you know, crazy, random, weird whatever we can come up with, like reused animation from other shows, even in some cases. And then. Here's in mid or like season two openers. Here's just a, a just a direct adaptation of the origin, just in case you didn't know what it was. And like between the two of them, I prefer the uh, Amazing Friends version, actually, because I also like that they kind of frame like a new adventure around it. But now here's a here's a question. Here's another like logic question I have. So contractually. How do things actually work with Iceman and Firestar and Spider-Man? Because like. They also established in the show that Iceman and Firestar are also X-Men, but it's like they are they are basically never part of the X team in this show other than when the episodes where they need to do the cross. Firestar says we're X X-Men during the uh, episode where they get together. She she makes like a pun about it. It doesn't see. And then like and they're living with Peter full time. So, uh, yeah, I just I don't know. Like it didn't fully click for me that like that they were truly fully divorced because, like, I don't know. I I mean, it just seemed weird to me. They say ex-X-Men, like, they're not part of them anymore, but they still hang out with them constantly, and I don't... I don't know. I haven't... I didn't watch the entirety of the show. Just, like, I just kind of cherry-picked episodes that seemed interesting just because of time constraints, but, like, I don't think at any point I ever saw them explain necessarily why they left the X-Men or what was going on with that, so... I don't know. Maybe that's just something... Yeah, it's never explained. One of the things that always bothers me about the show is like this really weird love triangle that's going on where Peter and and Bobby are kind of competing for Firestar's affection. And Firestar has like her own kind of sex life that she's got going on where she's dating other men and making them jealous. At one point, she she dates Dracula. But, you know, like you like you do. But uh, like it's always been very skeevy to me. I also hate to say it, too, but I feel like in the especially in the first few episodes, like Angelica definitely comes across as and God, like this the saying the term makes me kind of want to cringe. But like there's like definitely Mary Sue qualities to her in terms of like like especially that green that first episode, that Green Goblin one. It's like, you know, Bobby and Peter are basically getting, you know, 
into all sorts of trouble. And it's like, well, here comes Angelica to just solve all the problems. And it's like, whoa. But like, I feel like they do kind of temper that as the show goes on. I mean, she gets into her own issues where she needs to be bailed out. And they kind of all, I mean, if anything, Peter kind of, Spider-Man kind of comes out as like the alpha of the group. But for the most part, I feel like they all kind of play off each other, which, which is, Technically a good thing, I would say, in terms of like a team up show. You do want to see them all kind of working together and 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 aiding each other for the most part. We have to talk about Firestar's pet, Miss Lion, who is a key member of the cast and defeats supervillains in an episode or two. Like so Firestar has a pet dog, Miss Lion, and it must that must have been an executive note somewhere that said, We need an animal or a dog need at the heart of the show. And, dog. Yeah, well that was uh, that was a ripoff yeah. of Wonder was it Wonder Dog, I think, from Super Friends. I mean, like this was like, you know, in terms of like the the Saturday morning superhero cartoon wars, apparently Miss Lion is like a straight up ape of Wonder Dog. My understanding that that whole archetype, you could even kind of trace back to like Scooby-Doo fame because there was a lot of Hanna-Barbera like kind of knockoffs trying to get in on that that fame. So group of teenagers with dog sidekick. It just seems very derivative of a lot of things in the comic in Spider-Verse. When we visit the Amazing Friends universe, they're all killed. All of these characters are killed officially by Dan Slott, except for Miss Lion, who stands over their dead bodies and howls because that's the kind of good Saturday morning fun that you want. Yes, canonically, all these characters are dead. (laughs) And like Morlin is killing Peter and is like, you don't have the vocabulary to describe the murder I've just done because this is a universe where death doesn't exist. No, definitely not. <laughs> God, that was I'm glad that they eventually went back and then said uh, like just to kind of quell the the anger is that, OK, all of those were like not the actual universe of the cartoons, just one adjacent or close enough. The actual Amazing Spider-Man or, or, or Amazing Friends and Spider-Man Unlimited, all those guys are still around somewhere. So then the other thing I thought was kind of weird with this show, Dan, was like we got like far less Jonah, right? Am I am I misremembering this? I mean, I, I just be- I just binged it. So maybe I'm, maybe the shows are blurring together, but I don't feel like we got a lot of Jonah. I don't think we got any Betty or Robin. Like the Bugle itself, I mean, it's a character, but like very it's not obviously as prominent as what we saw in spider-man 81 which i thought was a little unfortunate yeah he only shows up in one episode which is this one spider-man unmasked with sandman and uh, you know sandman finds out peter's identity and kind of uses it to wreak havoc on him and and that incorporates jonah but yeah it's really weird he just disappears like it's like they got a studio executive note that said nobody likes jonah He's also in the uh, the episode for how they got together. He has like a brief little thing in that where he's like, Peter is like, hey, I got those pictures of Spider-Man. And Jonah's like, no, people want pictures of Firestar and Iceman. That's right. I remember that. Yeah. And I remember thinking it was weird that his mustache was like the color of like his temples. Like it was white instead of black. In <laughs> Seems like a coloring error. I noticed that too. Yeah. I mean, it's like they, like I said, they got like in a note that said, nobody likes Jonah. So get rid of him. And that's what happened, I, like I guess. Who, who, yeah, would, I like who would possibly too. give that note? Who's, Everybody who's loves Jonah. Nobody? 
Who it's, says that? It, it, it's apparently, like, it, it, Mark Webb and Amazing Spider-Man movies, I guess. Like, maybe it's the same production team. I don't know. Maybe Stan spiked it just because he wanted to do the voice of him. Yeah, there you go. My, my headcanon, by the way, for the Amazing Spider-Man movies is that J. Jonah Jameson is also played by J.K. Simmons in there. You just don't get to see him. Makes sense to me. Makes sense to me. So let's talk about some of our favorite or notable episodes from this run. I, I, I'm going to start it off because uh, we're going to go sequentially. And I chose two, so I'm cheating. But I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to do it because like they're both so weird. I thought that like I have to talk about how weird these episodes are because frankly, Mark, I'm surprised you didn't choose one of these episodes. So the first one I'm talking about is episode three, which is the fantastic Mr. Frump. And this, I'll talk briefly about this episode. There is like, it's a Dr. Doom Spider-Man story. And one of the few from amazing friends, maybe they felt like they overused him in the Spider-Man show where Dr. Doom gets this like amulet that gives him basically the power of like the infinity stones. And he like just gets it knocked out of his hands because of course, if you have something that powerful, it's easy to lose. And it goes to this random guy that used to work with like Aunt May named Mr. Frump. And he's this like, oh, another balding character. So I'm, I'm, I'm destined to talk about those. And he gets the powers of God, essentially. And he's just this like persnickety old man. And he uses it to basically like transform the city into like a wonderland. He like has these kids that are bullying him. And he like basically turns the kids into animals and slaves, which is interesting. And he turns like like he can summon animals and creatures out of nowhere. There's a famous moment where he summons a cat for himself and he says, I'll call him Mabel. And then it cuts to commercials like that was a big cliffhanger. Like, oh, what was he going to name dun, the cat? Dun, dun, dun. Uh, <laughs> I'll call him Mabel. Uh, so there you go. And eventually it turns into this like battle in this big arena in like. I don't know, like beyond the Beyonders realm and Spider-Man is like fighting against like a giant tentacle monster, like something straight out of Spider-Man hooky. It, it's like so weird. You're like, what is this show? And I remember watching this and I, I, I will admit I loved the Spider-Man 1981 show. But in terms of binging, this show was way better because I never knew where it was going. Each of these episodes feels like it was just a team of improv comedians just making stuff up from second to second. It's so strange. So that's episode three, the fantastic Mr. Frump. There was less of like a, a recurring structure for the episodes. It's just all over the place. And you never know like minute to minute what bizarre new kind of like thing they're going to throw out there for you to digest. So that's the fantastic Mr. Frum. And speaking of bizarre, what's your other episode, Dan? <laughs> yeah, my other episode is, uh, of course, it's Swarm. Swarm. Uh, favorite, Swarm. favorite of our show, Swarm. Uh, Swarm. And Swarm in this episode. Skeletons covered in bees. <laughs> so, so this one, he's not actually a Nazi skeleton in this one. He's just uh, like a meteorite crash lands. Sorry, kids. We can't, sorry, kids. We can't do Nazis. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> the skull is there. Um, 
I guess that's true. But he's maybe, maybe they got some complaints. Maybe they got, yeah, maybe they got complaints about being too political about Nazis, Dan. <laughs> Yeah, right. There you go. So, inside joke. But yes, these bees come and they are formed into Swarm, who at first seems to only be able to say his name, and he flies across the farmlands shouting Swarm at people. And in this, he has a very unique ability. He can transform human beings into, like, bee-human hybrids that he controls, including Aunt May, who spouts antenna and grows bee eyes. And he, of course, like Swarm is wont to do, summons a giant beehive in the middle of, like, the countryside. And um, it's up to Spider-Man and his spider friends to pretend that they're bee people and go into the hive and grab the meteor and destroy the radioactive bees that are swarm. And to me, the highlight of the episode is them disguising themselves as bees. Iceman grows ice wings out of his back and Spider-Man puts fake bee eyes over his already insect eyes. So it's like if you were wearing glasses, you put on another wear of glasses. Yeah, it's very odd. So that is the Swarm episode. And, you know, if you're looking just for weird episodes to check out on Disney Plus, like that's episode three and five. You really can't go wrong. They are every minute something stranger and stranger is happening. So those are my picks uh, because that's the love I got out of the show is just where is it going next? So, Mark, the episode you're going to talk, we've kind of talked about a little bit before. Tell us about which one you chose. Yeah, this this one's far less weird. I picked uh, A Fire Star is Born, which I guess is technically from season two, episode three. It's one of the the origin shows that I alluded to earlier. Part of the reason why I, I like this so much when I was watching it uh, for the first time the other day, I was like, oh, man, this is like OG Spidey versus Juggernaut. Of course, the X-Men also factor into the storyline where, of course, in the comics, you know, Spider-Man was on his own, but like, you know, it's 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 very similar in structure to that Roger Stern story in that, you know, Spidey's literally throwing everything he can, although he even throws cement at him initially, like a cement pit at him and he gets out of that. So take that, Roger Stern. You thought that would be what foiled him. But beyond that, we get Firestar's origin. And while it is very, I feel Stephen King Carrie-esque in terms of like, you know, trying to bully the girl in high school with with the with the weird powers. It's a pretty solid origin, although like I feel like they're setting it up to be far more tragic than it turns out to be. I mean, it's like basically like there's this one girl in high school who's just like utterly bullying the crap out of Angelica. And, you know, rather than like basically like pushing her into full on outcast territory, which would explain how she joined up with the X-Men. It's like, you know, she still finds a way to kind of Angelica still finds a way to kind of come out on top and absolve her name. And then she just joins the X-Men anyway. So like that's a bit of a cheat to me. I mean, like I feel like if this wasn't a Saturday morning like kids cartoon, they probably would have gone the darker route and, you know, like forced her out in kind of a more sinister way. But beyond that, like we get a cool X-Men team up. We get a good juggernaut Spider-Man fight here. We got Australian Wolverine, which I mean, like you can't get better than that. Clearly you get Storm and then like finally like them like ogling another woman in this show besides Angelica, which is kind of refreshing, I guess that, you know, it, it's equal opportunity chauvinism. So there you go. I mean, like, like, like to me and, and a pun on, you know, a famous movie. So so what's better than that? Firestar is born. My recommendation. 
So that's not the the Juggernaut episode. Xavier, do you want to quickly talk about yours? Uh, yeah, okay. The episode that I picked for the one that I liked was just the origin of the Spider Friends because, like, I don't know, a lot of the weirder elements of the show don't quite kind of gel with me as well. Like, I don't really like it in the ironic sense as much or the, like, just seeing how weird it gets. I was kind of looking for more stuff from, like, 81 Spider-Man, so... The fact that this episode felt very Peter Parker oriented, like he was kind of the main character and, you know, they took like a really heavy backseat, like sure they're introduced and team up with him, but they don't feel necessarily like they're kind of impeding on, on the Spider-Man-ness of this episode or like kind of imposing. That particular episode, I, I just like how, I don't know, it just, it reminded me the most of the 81 show and I was kind of just looking for more of that since I liked that one a lot. And uh, all of the weird, like, other superhero stuff in the universe, like mentions of the X-Men or Iron Man's inclusion, they all just felt very toned down and not intrusive. So, you know, uh, if you're looking for an episode that's, like, kind of not as bizarre as all the rest of them and, like, feels pretty typical of Spider-Man stuff, I think that one's probably the one to go with. Yeah, it's a great choice. Uh, it's a lot of fun, too. And and even though the Beatles is an atypical villain, it's 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 neat to see, like, you know, the kind of heavy character oriented scripting that this show, I think, leaned far away from kind of take the precedence here. If you find this show entertaining and valuable, please consider supporting us. Recommend Amazing Spider Talk to a friend. And if you're able, become a member on Patreon. We can only bring you this content with the support of our Patreon members, and we owe the show's success to every single one of them. We are constantly making exclusive content for our members. This week, it's a special podcast review of Amazing Spider-Man Volume 5, number 43. Marvel Comics are back, baby. Also, Dan and I are hosting interactive members-only live streams as well. You know, comic releases are limited right now, so why not take that $3.99 you might have spent on a comic and put it towards a month's subscription to support the show and start receiving our Patreon content. And when all the comic stores open back up again, the distribution chain gets sorted out and you can pick up your copious pulls, you'll hear our Patreon-exclusive review podcast on every new issue of Amazing Spider-Man the same week that it comes out. And if you contribute $10 a month, you gain access to exclusive artwork from famous Spider-Man artists commissioned exclusively for our members. This season, we'll be mailing out a print of Nothing Can Stop the Juggernaut, drawn by official Marvel artist Max Fiamora in colors and inks. Plus, every episode, we release a new episode-specific desktop background created for us by artist Nick Cagnetti for our patrons to enjoy. We know this is a hard time for everybody, so we appreciate anyone who supports the show just by listening and sharing. But if you do have the means, please join us on Patreon to support our continued existence of our show. Just follow the link in the description. And thank you to all the members who already make this show possible. But alas, Dan, it is that time, time for all good things to come to an end. So we want to say thank you to you, the listeners and viewers, for tuning in to the episodes of The Amazing Spider Talk. And of course, thanks to you, Xavier Mendoza, for, for stopping by and hanging out with us and talking about these these cool cartoons. Of course. It was, a, it was a good time. It was nice talking to you guys. So where can we find you on YouTube, Xavier? You can find me at uh, Godzilla Mendoza. Just, I mean, if you just look up Spider-Man video games, I'll probably be one of the first results. And again, if the kind of thing that I make over there is uh, game reviews, reviews of like animated shows, usually based around like comics and the occasional cosplay tutorial, 
if any of that sounds interesting, then go go give me a look. For right now, I'm doing a lot more cartoon-based stuff, kind of like this. So I'm actually going to review both the 81 show and Amazing Friends in more of a video essay format where I can kind of script out my thoughts a little bit more and, you know, write probably some funnier jokes towards those. And that'll be coming out in the next couple of months. And you've got a great a bunch of videos, like one about Dan Slott's run on comics that I like maybe a little controversial, but I thought really made an excellent point about, you know, storytelling and comics and stuff and comparing his run to Nick Spencer's. And, you know, if you're, if, if you're a listener of ours, I know you'll really dig that episode of your show. Oh uh, yes. It's a, uh, it's a, uh, how Nick, re- Nick Spencer redeemed Spider-Man. I wrote it right around the time that uh, that arc first started. Cause I was really digging what they were doing with it at the time. Yeah. It's really great. So thanks again, Xavier. It was a lot of fun having you on this episode. Obviously was edited by Rick coast with production support from Andy Myers. Our artwork comes handcrafted by artists, Ron friend, Sal Busema, Ray Sumser, and Nick Cagnetti. And our theme songs were produced by Ryland Bojack and spider Madge. And our animated introduction was created by Josh Sutton of the panels to pixels YouTube show. But we're going to talk about like what's coming up next. Yeah, what what is coming up next, Dan? Actually, I can't wait for our next episode because, you know, we're going to be joined by another special guest. This time it's Spider-Man editor Danny Fingeroth. And Danny is going to be joining us to talk about all the superstar artists who work on the Spider-Man books across this time period of the late 70s and early 80s who would go on to become more legendary in the industry. People like Frank Miller, John Romita Jr., and many more. So it's going to be a really fun episode as we talk about like a bunch of really awesome artists with a famous Spider-Man editor. So, uh, you know, join us. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. So if you missed out on our live stream or even missed out on the missing five minutes of our live stream tonight, uh, be sure to check in uh, on us in two weeks. And don't forget, as soon as the show ends, the conversation continues with our audience on YouTube. Don't worry. This is still a podcast that will always remain consistent, just like how we end the show. So until Mortimer Jamison becomes the Daily Bugle's lead photographer... What is our motto, Xavier? With great podcasts, there must also come... Ellipses. The Amazing Spider Talk. That's the next installment.